Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. Before we begin the show, I wanted to let you know that our fall edition contest is now open for submissions. Our terrific guest judges, Katie McDougall and A.M. Malin, will be selecting the prose and poetry winners. More details about our judges, the rules, and how to submit your works can be found on our website at onyxpublications.com. The early bird submission fee of $7.50 ends on July 31st. The regular contest fee is $12.50, and the contest closes on August 28th. We look forward to reading your amazing works. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Today's story is Shrewd Women, written by Lynn Hess and narrated by Meredith Lyons. Settle in and enjoy. Dolores put two sanitized twenties on the entryway bench for the young man fixing her computer. His real name sounded like Biblical Barabbas, but not exactly. He went by bar. On his computer fix-it visits, they had shared cups of coffee and chatted. People confided in Dolores without prompting, so she wasn't surprised when Barr shared that his mother stumbled drunk into a revival church meeting and was saved. Then later that same night, he was born in a rural hospital north of Macon. One of the hallway overhead lights flickered as Dolores rounded the corner into her office. Seated and hunched over, Barr tapped at the keyboard and bounced, jerking his head to the music coming from his headphone-clad ears. The computer and new ergonomic leather chair, not worth the price tag, were compensation Christmas gifts from her son, because he had moved at the beginning of the new year to Silicon Valley for an IT job. Maybe she would fly to see him next Thanksgiving. Atlanta was a long way from the West Coast. It depended on her sciatic pain and COVID. Behind Barr laid a lumbar pillow Dolores' sister had made with the image of her dog Blue, his ever-present pleading countenance captured. It rested on the cold laminate floor. She gazed out the window at the leafless Japanese maple Joe had planted after their son's birth. The branches blocked her view of the rest of the overgrown backyard. Everything needed her attention. Dolores picked the pillow up and grunted from the pain in her right knee. Poor Blue. The beagle mix mutt's sad eyes had caught her attention at the pound, but not any amount of love had mended that poor animal's spirit. He whined for attention and then cowered for thirteen years until he died last spring, days after Joe passed. She didn't blame Blue for leaving her, but she was mad as hell at her husband. Optimistic Joe had promised there was plenty of time left. Dolores turned on a lamp behind Barr. He yanked off his headphones. Miss Dolores, don't be sneaking up on me. 
I have skills I learned in the streets. Is that so? Since you're in my home, you might want to tamp down those ninja skills. Barr offered her a fist bump, and his eyes widened as she hit his knuckles. Surprised you, huh? Don't let this withered face fool you. I have a grandson. He keeps me up to date. That was a lie. She hadn't heard from Dillian's skinny behind since he won a track scholarship, borrowed money for a down payment on a car, and went off to college. Barr laughed. All right, then. Your computer is updated, virus-free, and ready to go. How much do I owe you? Like I told you before, you're a neighbor, so a piece of your delicious pound cake and a cup of coffee. Come on, then. He followed her down the hallway into the living room. Hey, you should let me show you how to invite your family for some screen time. The first 45 minutes are free. Maybe next time. You take the money lying on the table in the entryway on your way out, or else I won't ask you to help again. I'll have to call some geeky stranger into my house. No telling what will happen. She pranced around her modest home like Vanna White, pointing to the 48-inch television and six-year-old laptop. They might take all my worldly possessions. Okay, I hear you. Did you make my favorite? She walked into the galley kitchen with the dark wooden cabinets and gray granite countertops. I made my favorite, vanilla with powdered sugar sprinkled on top. Barr rubbed his hands together. Yes, cut me a big piece. She handed him a slab of cake on a saucer and then leaned her backside against the counter. I'll bake you a cake, a big one, if you do me a favor. What? He took a bite, standing up. I want you to track down the solicitors who keep calling about buying our, I mean my house. They've been calling multiple times a day for ten years, both phones and texting. Joe was headed toward his ringing cell when his heart gave out. I'll block them for you, no sweat. He inhaled another huge chunk of cake. No, my Joe tried that, and they switched numbers. I want their street addresses. Can you do that? She moved to the cabinet across the sink, took out two mugs, and poured coffee. Yeah, with a special app, but they could be calling from anywhere, not just around Atlanta. Besides, that sounds like you want to confront somebody. Dangerous business. Not me. I want to hit them where it hurts, figuratively speaking. Barr handed her an empty saucer in exchange for a black coffee. Whoa, you mean payback? It depends on their greed. They'll never see me coming. Don't you know gray-haired women over 50 are invisible unless they're prospective marks? Barr had rescheduled the bribe cake pickup and had never showed. Finally, Dolores ditched the cake in the trash bin and then scrolled through her voicemail and found the callback number for the last buy-your-property solicitor. It wasn't showing a company name, but it would do. The employee's voice was a repeating wave, either too loud or too soft, with a sustained syllable at the end of each phrase. It reminded Dolores of a buzzard circling on an air current, getting closer and closer to its prey. Scavenger. The voice ended his spiel. We'll buy your house as is, and give you money in the bank for a fresh start. Funerals are so expensive nowadays. I'm a widow living alone. Maybe an estimate would be a good idea. Dolores adds a quiver in her voice for effect. She wanted them to think she was vulnerable. Dolores took notes as the we-buy-as-is real estate broker 
knitted his brow and pointed to the bowed garage ceiling. That drywall replacement will cost you. Looks like it's an old leak. When was the last time you replaced the roof? After this leak, we had someone come and redo the roof. The roof was fine, but the bowed, water-stained panel was one of those repair jobs Joe never got around to fixing. The salesman shook his head, feigning sympathy. You'll need to find all the information about the old house repairs before you sell it. Fix everything. It might take months, or my company could make you a fair offer as is. Hmm. Out of curiosity, how many elderly homeowners do you talk to in a week? It depends. We buy homes from all sorts of people, but maybe five or six a week. How do you get most of your leads? Word of mouth, but we hire outside telemarketing companies to advertise for us. You mean they call homeowners randomly off a list? Sort of. Many are ready to downsize or they've lost a spouse. We gather their names and phone numbers from their county's list of property owners. Public records. Some bought their houses in the 80s and 90s, so their retirement age or older. The upkeep and the yard work are too big for them now. They need a simpler lifestyle. Dolores suspected they checked the obituaries, too. You mean a retirement home? Some decide to go that route. Would you write down the name of the telemarketing company you use? She smiled her best, harmless old lady smile and handed him her notepad and pencil. I'd like to call and thank the young woman who gave me your name. Such a sweetheart. He took her pencil, shifting it several times between his fingers, and printed Green Hall Marketing on a notepad. The paunchy middle-aged man probably hadn't used a pencil since elementary school. I'm not sure you'll be able to track down the woman who helped you. They come and go, but you can leave a message. She thanked him and tucked the notepad in the pocket of her sweater. Let's get out of the cold. Go back inside. Eat some cake. Cup of coffee? He followed her inside. Coffee would hit the spot, and the smell of your cake would sell any house. What do you mean? It's an old trick to bake cookies before an open house, so a house smells homey. Associates the dream of owning a home with the craving. She gave him a piece of cake. Yes, you're a smart cookie, he laughed, took a nibble, and pointed to the cake with his fork. Wow, you should sell these online. Couldn't do that in an old folks' home. To break the awkward silence, the man asked about a photo hanging on the kitchen wall of a sleepy Dillion with birthday cake icing smeared on his six-year-old face, a cheek propped on one hand. Two cups of coffee later, a photo album, a delay tactic, she had dug out, was open between them on the table. The man yawned. Dolores told the same story twice to make the man antsy. She loved telling how Joe and she had first met at an antique car show. She walked to the sink and ran the water into the filler pitcher. I'm still not sure I want to sell. More coffee? No, no, could I use your restroom? That coffee went right through me, the man stood up. Of course, first door on the right in the hallway, Dolores smirked. As soon as the bathroom door shut, Dolores took the magnetic tracker from the junk drawer, slipped out the back door, and around to the street. 
She placed the tractor onto the back bumper of the real estate guy's shiny Subaru and returned to the kitchen. She checked her Timex. Exactly three minutes. Dolores met the man in the living room as he placed a card on the television cart. His pants looked damp. He had washed his hands, and not finding a towel, he had wiped his wet hands on the front of his pants. Her plan to slow him down inside the bathroom had worked. Your restroom door sticks, or the lock is haywire. I thought I may need to call for help to get out. He glanced at the living room wall clock. Shoot, I have another appointment. It was a pleasure meeting you. I hope we can do some business together. I left my card. Remember to ask for Jake, he pointed, an annoying habit of the inarticulate. Holding the porch banister with one hand to steady herself, Dolores waved goodbye to the salesman. Plan B was in motion. She didn't need Barr's help anyway. Dolores put on a baseball cap and sunglasses and tracked Jake to a dumpy motel. The app worked like magic. Trash dotted the parking lot, and the faded orange doors and wrought iron railings needed painting. She parked near the man's Subaru and watched. She pretended to be looking down at her cell held against the steering wheel. Jake knocked on two doors, stayed less than ten minutes at each room, then proceeded to a third room on the ground floor, where a Latino teenager dressed in tight jeans and a tank top came to the door and handed him what appeared to be receipts. Preparing to follow the smarmy man, Dolores put down her thermos of coffee and egg salad sandwich, but Jake sat inside his car and made a phone call. The idea for the tracker came from the mystery book's plot on her bedside table. She had bought the tracker at her local electronics store, and the young man behind the counter had installed the app on her phone. Dolores scribbled the motel's name and the ground floor room number on a piece of paper. Next time, she would bring her binoculars and take photos. She had expected an office of slick sales reps with headsets behind computers. Adults! Not whatever this was. Jake drove to the front of the motel handed an envelope to the clerk, and exited the parking lot. He turned north on Shallowford Road in heavy traffic. Dolores decided to stay put and returned to her parking spot. Maybe the workers would leave and go home. As she nibbled on a sandwich and drank coffee, two teenagers, wearing black and sporting tattoos and piercings, came outside for a break and lit up. But before they could finish their cigarettes, a young woman, maybe twenty, poked her head out of the doorway and fussed at them in an Eastern European language and broken English. They dropped their cigarettes and shuffled back inside. While the door was open, Dolores glimpsed about a dozen young people either cross-legged on a bed or sitting on the carpet using the edges of the bed as their desks, talking into headsets and typing on computers. In late afternoon, the same Latino girl Dolores had spotted earlier left on foot and came back with two bags of burgers. Dolores took a short break and walked over to the restroom at the QT nearby. Nothing happened for the next few hours except a couple of adult guests brought junk food from the vending machine. At dusk, a maintenance man wearing a utility belt strapped around his skinny waist walked by the downstairs units, stared in Dolores' direction, and walked toward her car. He yelled, Hey, you there with the engine running. She dropped her coffee in her lap, cussed, and sped away. The next day, Dolores posed as a guest at three other motels that Jake frequented. 
She ate in their cafes or the adjoining restaurants and took strolls observing the comings and goings. There were three to four rooms in each dumpy motel with young immigrants and probably runaways that were working long hours and living in the rooms where they worked. Dolores had read about sex traffickers picking up runaways in bus stations, but never about exploiting teenagers in this way, like indentured servants. At the end of the month, a big van drove up and 15 or so kids piled in the van and Dolores followed them to a new casino in Buckhead. Envelopes were handed to each worker as they exited. Two adult overseers smoked cigarettes and talked. They didn't see Dolores' car parked in the shadows with her windows down. She heard every word. I gave them some fake IDs and just enough cash to get loaded and gamble. Enough to feel like winners for one night. What does some of them take off? It doesn't matter. We can replace them easily. They know immigration or child protective services will send them back where they came from. That's why most of them stay put. The man in charge turned away from the parking lot and faced his apprentice. Dolores stuck her head out the window. Only had one who wouldn't learn enough English to say his script. We cut him loose. The kids with parents, we send them home. Give them a bus ticket if they don't make their quotas. That sounds kind of harsh. Hey, we give them three squares a day and a roof over their heads. We pay them more than minimum wages, bonuses. Believe me, this job is safer, better than being out there working as a cook, dishwasher, or prostitute. They age out eventually, but without a GED and or papers, it's tough. Some of them make assistant manager and stick around until they can afford a lawyer and get a work visa. The youngest white guy threw his cigarette butt on the ground. I see. What's the story on the Native American kid? Dolores felt as if the man asking the questions was staring at her. She ducked back inside the car. He ran away. Rez. Doesn't drink. Prefers... Herb. Yeah, these kids need reinforcement, and we're the proud managers of the highest producing team around. Jake frickin' loves us. He slapped the other man on the back as Dolores propped her ear on the window's rubber edging. The guy who comes around and picks up the maybe to yes cards? Yep. We get paid for each lead, but when he closes a deal, we get a cut of his commission. Let's go have some fun. They turned and walked inside the casino, passing a neon sign with an outline of a bikini-clad woman with big breasts holding a cocktail. Dolores hadn't slept well, and she didn't like texting. She couldn't say what she was thinking in clipped phrases and silly emojis. She erased her message and started over. We need to meet. Kids being exploited. This is Dolores. She hit send, but she couldn't tell if it was delivered. In a couple of minutes, the phone lit up with a message from Barr. At work, meet after five. Her hand twitched above the phone. She used her index finger to type out, Tacos on Main Street, Tucker, at 6 p.m. She received a thumbs-up emoji. Now all she had to do was convince Barr to help without going to the police. The taco restaurant was full of loud patrons winding down after their workday. Barr ate his taco without his usual play-by-play -play banter about whatever side hustle he was into. The last deal Dolores knew about was a computer game he created and was trying to sell. Dolores read the beer ad on the wall for the third time. You're quiet? Everything okay? She scooted around on the cracked booth seat trying to get comfortable. The usual. 
My sister lost her job. Again. No filter. She spouts off and they fire her. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Hard to make rent when I'm feeding her and my little nephew. You have a lot on your mind. I understand if you don't want to get mixed up in my plan. Just another day in the life of a black man. Shoot. What you got? Dolores told Barr about the setup at the motels, the teenagers being housed, and the conversation she overheard between the manager and his trainee. As long as the kids come and go as they like, I'm not sure it's a bad thing. Believe me, there are worse. My sister and I were in and out of the foster care system. It sucks. I ran away several times myself. The immigrants without green cards would interest ice, but I wouldn't rat out someone trying to make a living and survive in a new country. He devoured half of his third taco. Dolores was glad Barr hadn't suggested going to the police. She wanted to extract her revenge before she called the authorities, but her young friend acted apathetic. So Jake's not a lowlife? I didn't say that, but maybe he's like everybody else, using the system however he can to make money. At the expense of homeless teenagers, runaways, and refugees. I don't doubt some are illegals, but most probably aren't. She must have looked incredulous. Hey, some people from other countries are fleeing from genocide, war, and awful poverty, but here, when you're in the projects, and if you're lucky, your parent works two or three jobs and not drunk or an addict, you think you know better. You find yourself in the streets. Barr said with conviction. Obviously, he was speaking from experience. She didn't try to argue. They finished up their meal and Dolores paid the bill. I could loan you a few dollars for the rent until your sister goes back to work. Nah, eviction isn't knocking on my door yet, but I appreciate the offer. Okay, but keep in mind, I'd be glad to pay you to do some surveillance work on Jake and his wife. How much? What do you make at work per hour? Dolores asked. Barr worked at a retail sports shoe shop. A little more than minimum wage, plus commission? I'll pay you twenty an hour. Barr slapped the table. When and where? I'm off Thursday and Friday. On Wednesday, Dolores followed Jake home. In less than an hour, he came out of his two-story brick house with his suburban housewife dressed in name-brand sportswear and three stair-step boys in tow. The youngest was strapped into the latest version of a baby's safety seat. The child fussed and squirmed as his father secured the car seat and his mother railed on about the neighbor's garbage can being left at the curb too long. Dolores took photos, wondering if the wife knew how her husband provided for her and her children. Throughout dinner at the pizza restaurant, Jake nodded as the wife talked too loudly about her sister's doctor's appointment and kept the children from climbing over the table and grabbing at each other. The youngest boy, maybe 18 months old, turned around in the booth, stuck his bottom in the air, and waved a toy train at Dolores. She covered her face with her napkin and bumped her helmet-like wig askew. Jake didn't look up from his cell, and his wife, Heather, Jake called her by name, was asked to control the toddler. She jerked the child into her lap and didn't bother turning around to notice who or what had caught her son's interest. The married couple never noticed the old lady in the back booth. Barr called from jail and Dolores bailed him out. 
What happened, she asked, trying to block out the anxiety she felt standing outside a jail. I punched Jake, who had the scared, shitless Indian kid backed up against the wall, choking him. Did the police arrest Jake, too? Are you kidding me? He's white. He told the cops I tried to rob him. A citizen dressed in a suit and an officer walked behind Barr. The cop eyed Dolores and Barr, but kept walking up the stairs to the double-glass entrance doors. Did you take some photos? Yeah, but Jake told the cops it was his cell phone. They gave my phone to him. By the way, the wife, Heather, was a big-time lawyer, has an Ivy League education. What she's doing with Jake the Snake, I don't know. Jeez, let me take you home. I have an idea. I'm sitting this one out. I'm done. The next day, after Jake left his house, Dolores knocked on the door. Mrs. Higley, I'm a client of Jake's. You just missed him. Did you try calling him? I would like to talk to you. Ask your advice. My friend and your husband had a disagreement and they fought. Men. Jake told me he'd had a nosebleed yesterday. I knew he lied. Dolores eased herself onto a lower step. She peeked inside the glass pane panels, framing the doorway, and spied a foyer large enough to be a sunroom. Honestly, I googled you, Miss Higley, and I know you're a smart, educated woman, a lawyer. I need your help. May I come inside? I can't. I haven't practiced since the birth of Junior, so just point me in the right direction. I won't stay five minutes, I promise. I brought some warm pound cake. My mother made me pound cake on my birthdays before she passed. Heather opened the storm door and invited Dolores inside. She wondered how long it had been since anyone had asked Heather's opinion about anything. Dolores explained why she'd started following Jake and the unexpected results. You're describing exploitative behavior towards vulnerable young people. I can't believe... That's not true. I chose not to see. Jake always takes the easiest route. So you're telling me my husband has this bar's cell? Yes. Hold on. I found an Android phone in his coat pocket. Honestly, my youngest was crying and I hid it away for later. I'm rather good at deciphering Jake's passwords. He has strayed a time or two. In less than 15 minutes, Dolores called Barr and entered his password in the Android cell. Heather saw Barr's photos of her husband choking the Native American teenager and Dolores's surveillance photos of Jake picking up client leads from desperate teenagers housed in cheap motels. He actually put his hands on that young man, Heather said. Dolores sent all the incriminating photos to Heather's email for her to use as leverage. Heather straightened her shoulders. Don't you worry. I'll handle this matter. Barr's charges will be dropped, and I'll contact a discreet friend in social services. My family has money, and my husband will be a good boy from now on. Dolores hugged Heather goodbye. Thank you. We women know how to get things done. Yes, but your vigilance pricked and awakened this busy mother's conscience. Grateful for her years with kind, honest Joe. Dolores waved at Heather, promising to email her the pound cake recipe, and shut the car door. Who knew a slice of perfect revenge came packaged in a shrewd woman named Heather?
You've just listened to Shrewd Women by Lynn Hess. Welcome to the post story portion of the podcast. I'm your co-host, Melissa, here with JW. Hello. We've got Lynn on the show today to discuss her story and also to get to know the mind behind this work. Welcome, Lynn. Hi, how are you doing this morning? So well, <laughs> we're very pleased to have you on the show today. Lynn, a multi-talented retired police lieutenant, is an award-winning author of several novels, and her shorter fiction can be found in multiple publications. So let's find out more. Who is Lynn Hess? Okay, well, I've been writing for um, probably 20 years, been writing fiction, Yay. but I had written a lot of other things along the way while I was raising kids and working as a police officer. So um, I do have a law enforcement background, 25 years, and I worked in a county department here in Georgia called DeKalb County Police Department. I was one of the first women out on the street. Yay. Yeah. That's great. They had a few women who they had put in CID, um, working sex crimes with children, et cetera. But we really, my group, I, I graduated in 1980 from their academy and we were the first group where we had a good, probably a third of the class was female. Wow. Nice. And so we started out, you know, we were not welcomed by the men, needless to say. They did Mm. not want us out there. Yeah. And uh, so we were pretty much on our own. We had always worked by ourselves. There was another, never another female or a supervisor or anybody because there was no female supervisors except mm-hmm. a couple. Wow. I think there was one or two in CID that had made sergeant. What is but, CID though, real quick? Oh, I'm sorry. Criminal Investigation Division. Okay. okay. Thank you. Yeah. So they were detectives. They weren't on the street. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it was wild. And I did most of my work on Southside, which was the high crime area. Ooh. Uh, they they actually sent me Southside because, because they didn't like me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah, because I, I had not had any vacation time whatsoever. And I'd been working about three years. And I said, you know, I've got to have some time off. One of the things they did to harass you was not give you a good evals, you know, and, uh. not, and not tell you why. And so I said, well, you got to give me a day off. You know, I got to have some time. And um, anyway, because I said, you will give me a day off. They uh, <laughs> they sent me Southside. But it, actually, yeah. they did me a big favor. I loved working Southside. Great. Uh, um, yeah, it was great. And I was a sergeant on Southside. And while I was there, I developed a domestic violence street unit based on Janet Reno's design. Mm, wow. And it worked really well. And when I sent my people, I trained my people. They actually came to my house and I gave them extra training. No way. Yeah. And great. set awesome. up. Yeah, set up a package deal, you know, where they knew what they were supposed to do. I got them a camera to take pictures, make really good cases. And uh, we followed up the next day and called the victim. So we're making these fantastic cases. And I said, well, let's go up to CID and let's check the stats. I want to be able to prove that we're, you know, lowering the calls. That was the original reason for doing it was to uh, get rid of the repeat calls. Mm -hmm. You know, that my supervisor had come to me, my lieutenant, and said, we got to do something about all this high volume calls. So anyway, I sent somebody up there, one of my best people up there and come to find out there was grant money going for a CID for a domestic violence unit in the criminal invest- 
investigation division. I didn't know that. And so all crazy, I mean, this wasn't cost him a penny. Yeah. It wasn't cost him a penny on my side. And um, the chief threw a big fit and I had to disband my unit. What? But did you ever find out though, if your techniques were working? Oh, I know they were. I knew because we were not, I mean, you go to the same house time and time and time again. Right. So I knew we weren't having to go back to those houses because I worked the same shift. So I knew that, that I, you know, I just wanted stats to prove it. Yeah. And and the other people who weren't working the domestic, the other officers loved it because they didn't want to work the domestics. (laughs) So it it was a win-win for everybody. But anyway, uh, we, we, we kept doing it. We just didn't, you know, it wasn't official. Yeah. It wasn't official. (laughs) You know, what works works. I mean, right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so then I made lieutenant. I didn't know if I was ever going to make lieutenant, but I finally made lieutenant after like nine years. Congratulations. And, and that was, um, it was okay being a lieutenant, but you know, you're between your sergeant and your captain, and it's pretty much administrative work Okay. Uh, for most of the day, and I wasn't real happy doing that. Mm. Uh, you know, they tell you what they want you to do and so on, and... Mm. Um, so as I was the Maverick, my mother always called me the Maverick. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, I, um, I decided that when I was in charge of the mobile crisis unit, which was a nurse and a police officer riding together, and they went out to calls where the, we knew that the person was mentally ill mm. and probably had decompensated. Okay. And so they didn't have it in the rules or regs. And if you know anything about police work, you know there's the, these huge manuals of rules and regs. So they didn't actually have that unit down in there, and we'd had it for years. And by the way, this is one of those new ideas that's come back around. Yeah, right. Uh, to, in police work, but um, in reforming police work. But so they didn't have any cross-training for use of force. And so I instituted cross-training so the nurses knew what we were supposed to do to protect them, and we knew what they couldn't do, which basically they couldn't defend themselves. Yeah, wow. Oh. Yeah, so the nurses are putting themselves out there. Yeah, but there was a... Someone a, to protect them. Yeah, but, you know, the, the nurses actually had a medical bag full of drugs. And wow. so, oh. <laughs> and so the police officer who was with that nurse is, you know, here we got... Uh, color of law in a uniform standing right. there and she's trying to get them to take their meds so liability issues were also a problem mm. wow and they transported these people a lot of times out of the county to grady memorial hospital so uh, or in other different places out of the county so i wanted them to be state deputized and uh, ask for legal advice from the legal department and again they just went crazy and pulled me in and reminded me that I was on probation as a lieutenant. Wow. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Well, you really had to fight. You yeah. really had to fight. Yeah. So I got transferred again to Tucker. Oh, my to that Tucker? Yeah, to another precinct oh, after okay. that. I was, at, I was at Central Headquarters during uh, the beginning part of my yeah. lieutenant days and then went to Tucker. But it all worked out, and I hope that I helped training and helped officers meet their goals. I, I instituted a lot of customer service kind of things that 
you know, work police officers are not known to do. Yeah. You know, just simple things like leave a note on the door that you came by while they were on vacation to check their house. It makes yeah. a difference. It does make right. a difference. Yeah. Right, right. Wow. Well, clearly your background has a lot to do with your writing, at least would appear to. But my question was, were you always like a mystery suspense reader or did you come to this after working in the field in a way? Well, I I did read a lot of mystery and crime, but I think I uh, was more into the literary type. Really? Um, yeah, That's probably. Probably. Um, and when I started writing, I was at the end, towards the end of my career, and I was pretty burnt out. And I went to Mobile, Alabama on one of my very few uh, <laughs> uh, vacations I'd ever taken. And I That's saw- That's an unusual place to vacation to, Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> well, it was, um, it was Mardi Gras season. Okay. I think it was my husband's suggestion, actually. But we went down to Mobile, and I had never been there. And so we went to Mobile, and we're walking up and down Dolphin Street, if you're familiar. And there's all these billiard parlors, et cetera, up and down Dolphin Street. And they're really, really busy, except this one place. And I peeked in the window, and there was a U-shaped bar, real old billiard parlor tables, you know, the old-fashioned kind. And, you know, it's smoke-filled. And two or three guys turned towards me and gave me a look like, like, you better stay out of here. Oh. Huh. <laughs> You're the wrong person to do that to, I had the feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, and I checked it out two or three different times and said, Dean, nobody's going in and out of there. Don't you think that's weird? And so my, imagine, my imagination started going, you know, and I thought, I bet that is the militia group in this town. Oh. And so the white supremacy element of Well of Rage was formed in my mind, oh. and I started writing the first chapter of Well of Rage. Yeah. And this was when? This was when? This would have been, I guess it was like 2002-ish, maybe. So before, yeah. a little before you retired, you said. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm curious on, as you were working as a police officer, which I think is just fascinating. I know you see a lot as a police officer. Did you take notes along the way at that time, any point in your career? Did you know, like, this is interesting stuff. I need to write this down because I want to eventually write about it. Or did you keep a notebook or anything? Or you just were relying on memory? I have uh, probably two huge, you know, tubs of journals. Mm. Uh, but I'll tell you, it's really, really hard to go back and read them. I mm. bet uh, so. Uh, yeah, a lot of them, as uh, veterans will tell you, uh, it's very hard to discuss that with somebody who's not a veteran. Yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, it brings back a lot of trauma, Yeah. to be, to be honest. Sure. Uh, there was so much, um, you know, I had to put up a lot of sexism. I'm sure. Uh, I had to, you know, just fight, fight, fight to get my training and to get, you had to have a certain amount of training certificates, extra certificates, along the way, plus good evals to be able to take the next test yeah. for sergeant mm-hmm. or lieutenant. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that's what they that's what they hindered was you doing that. Mm. And I had been a sergeant for nine years when I put in, I wanted to put in to take the lieutenant's test and I had had to fight to get my certificates. And um, there was a really young sergeant that they had already 
said he could go to lieutenant, take the lieutenant's test. So they were grooming him. Yeah. And it was a guy. And so I did, there was only two or three times in my career that I went in and said, mm, going to have to do this because yeah. right. I can prove that it's time to do this. Yeah, and, sure. And so I kept my PO sheets. That's another thing. You know, I started keeping my PO sheets because they would say the stats at the end of the month, they would take my stats and give them to somebody else. Uh, no, I'm like, no, no, this sounds horrible. Boy, you're not giving the, the wow. cab police. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you now know, when you, you say PO sheets before you go on, can you explain what that is? Okay. Every time you do anything as a police officer on the street, you're supposed to document it. Okay. Mm. I went to this call, I, this domestic, whatever it is. There's, we have codes. So that was an 87. I went to this 87. This is when I got there. This is when I left. This is, I wrote a report. I didn't write a report, whatever. Okay, so it's basically full documentation of every stop that you make. Right. So, uh, plus, I, I, I think I got to the point where I was actually photo, you know, photostatting my, um, my reports, et cetera, too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so I finally went in, and, you know, the old thing that they always said was, well, we can't spare you. We have to have somebody on the street to be a supervisor, and oh, this, other, this other guy's going. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I have nine years as a sergeant, and this guy has, I forgot, I think it was just barely six months or something. He probably Goodness. just come up with Goodness. And I said, you will send me. Good. Bravo. Yeah, yeah. Bravo. You will send me or else, you know, because <laughs> I, I just, I, you know, I've been a sergeant long enough. I need to be able to take this test. Yes. Right. It's absolutely. And marvelous. You know, this miracle happened, and it opened up, and I got to go, right? So, yeah. so he oh went to, he went to, but somehow they made it without us. So, um, yeah, but it's just crazy that you have to fight that hard as a female to, yeah. to get what you should, should be able to get just by working hard. But that because is, most, yeah. mo that tells me that most people don't stand up. Like, you know, if you stood up and you got what you wanted with that fight, which you shouldn't have had to do, but uh, mm -hmm. most, most people are probably going to just take that at face value. Right. And just be like, okay, fine. I'll just stay where well, I am. Well, I hope at this point that they actually don't have any more females in, you know, overall, we're still only about a third of the force when you look in general at the nation. <laughs> third of most forces are third women. But I hope those women are being promoted with less friction and less conflict. I yeah. hope so because I was part of five women there was five women who took the test in the early 80s, and I chose not to take it. I could have, but I didn't. I didn't feel like I was ready yet. And they took the test. They had more years than me on the road, and they all passed it. They were within the first 15, and that's by score, not by ranking. Okay, 15 yeah. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, and they skipped over all of them. Wow. Oh my goodness. And so we had a director of public safety as well as chief of police. And we went to both of them. We said, look, we don't want to make waves. We don't want to cause problems. Just promote these women as you would if they were a guy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. You can sue us, but we're not going to do that. Golly. And oh so my goodness. that's what we did. We sold hot dogs on Decatur Square. We did what we had to do to raise the money to get a good lawyer. And we tried to sue as a uh, class action. 
Yeah. But we we had to have all the women. We had to so had a certain amount of women in the force that would say they wanted to be part of it, and they right. were they were afraid. Sure, of course. Sure. And they didn't sign off on it. But anyway, mm. the there was mm. two women. There was me and another woman officer plus these five women, and we got the settlement a few years later, and they were all promoted. Well, good for yeah, you. Yeah, but that I... immediately puts you on the bad list. <laughs> well, so. I was already probably there. Yeah. But... Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that like solidified, that like closed the lid, as it yeah. were. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like it, but... I mean, I, you should have done it. Yeah, definitely. I think that's yeah. great because you're standing up and making change. Yeah. And I think maybe, like you said, hopefully that's different now than yeah. it was and and you were a part of that change which is exciting it's sad that you had to go through it but i think we have to focus on you know where we are now and what we can do moving forward and i think that's progressive action and i think that's fantastic yeah, that's good i was actually going to ask as part of your journals and you not looking at them um but when you wrote those journals were they more of a um just a release for you going through the things that you went through or were they a documentation of something to remember? Uh, I, because I mean, that's writing. I mean, yeah, lots that, of people journal, I mean, yeah. journal for writing purposes. Yeah, I, I think that I did it for um, a release as well as documentation, but I also taught sacred dance during these years. And uh, just this, another art form. Uh, mm-hmm. t- yes. But I think that balance of, writing it down, getting it out. Yeah. And and then the practice of movement and what dance means to me. Yeah. Uh, that that balancing of the body, mind and spirit is so important and many many police officers do not have they eat, sleep, dream about police work and they their friends are all police and they mm. never get out of that thing. Yeah. And their mental health suffers from that. Yeah. Sure. That's really been a theme of this issue, I think, of really it's talking about how mental, emotional, spiritual, you know, it's my my platform is, is exactly that. But um, I, I find that very interesting how I feel like a lot of creatives and those who are really successful put a lot into that. There's a good balance, like you said, a work life recreation balance. Absolutely. And so. How does your dance and the, your extracurricular activities influence your writing? Well, it's kind of a back and forth flow. Um, yeah. Like right now, I just finished five different performances with Beacon Dance. This is our 60th anniversary. And we've been talking about who decides who belongs. And uh, most of the stories that we worked with and some of the gestures that we actually used in the choreography uh, were taken from people who lived in mar- in marginalized communities and told us their stories. And so that's very important to me is to take that and use it as I, in my writing. And it came out, I think some of this has come out in my last book. It's called The 40 Nights Burn. And it has a um, Roma, a female protagonist, and she's a con artist. I like it. And uh, it follows her journey as she comes to grips with being Roma, but, you know, kind of having a little shame. She's Mm. probably, she feels good about it, but she doesn't feel good about it at times. And, you know, how she negotiates her life and tries to get through this con that has been set up by her mentor, uh, kind of down and out British actor. And he 
he dies in the beginning of the book and she has to take over. And so it's a, uh, it's a suspense, you know, you know, mm. there's going to be a con, but you just don't know how it's all going. <laughs> wow, I guess great. Very cool. I love how all the pieces of your life are influencing your writing. Um, yeah. It's fantastic. So I'm very curious. We haven't really talked about your piece yet because your, your fascinating background, we've gotten, <laughs> gotten side railed, but so shrewd women, can we talk about this piece? Um, where did this idea come from and how did you run with it? Okay, well, uh, I have been getting, my husband and I have been getting phone calls about uh, selling our house for, I don't know. Me 50. too. And I feel mm. for Dolores. I just, <laughs> I'm ready to hunt these people down myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, you know, was toying around with the idea of, okay, well, how would somebody that's sort of, I think Dolores is kind of a combination of my mother and, you know, a couple of other women that yeah. are of the next generation. And I said, okay, how could, how would my mother have uh, decided to do that? How would she have decided to, you know, what route would she have taken? Yeah. And so she was, she was not, uh, she was not a feminist, but she was very gutsy. I like and Ooh. I thought, you know, I think Dolores would, if her husband died, how would she handle this? And so, um, yeah, that's where it began. And then it was so much fun just to <laughs> yeah. follow it through. And my yeah. characters, I'm a pantser. I'm not a okay. outliner. Yeah. And so I got to a certain point where it was time for it to go to, how is she going to accomplish this revenge? Right. And I just, it was like, I don't know. I don't know because there was there was these bits and pieces of what she discovered as she followed these people. Yeah. Uh, there's bits and pieces that I hadn't expected to pop up. I like it. And mm. so um, I said, okay, well, I've got to do a little more research here and there. And do I really want to leave this in? Are people going to be able to deal with the fact that these kids are being used? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I, you know, I, I I let it sit. I went back to my novels and was writing my novel, and I probably took, probably took two weeks. I would go back to it every once in a while, but I wasn't getting anywhere. Yeah, and, interesting. And about, yeah, and about two weeks into letting it semi sit, I said, "Okay, I know what she's going to do. I know, I know what's going to happen." Nice. And then I got back down to almost that last page and a half. And that's when I knew exactly how it was going to end. And that's when she decides to enlist the help of another woman. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I like that. Lots of fun themes in the yeah. story. Um, ownership of, of your own destiny here and also um, camaraderie you know, banding together toward an idea. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, all of, all the important things in my first book, Well of Rage, uh, the rookie female cop comes into Mobile New and she has to come up with a support group. And so one of the themes of that book is also how women have to, bonding together, they, they find the strength to accomplish what they need to accomplish. Yes. That's great. Yeah. Well, it's very timely with what's going on. But like I said, this is a an issue. I think that a lot of people, for some reason within the past several months, I feel like 
these calls about buying houses have started. I've heard more and more people talking about it. But I, like I said, I feel for Dolores in this. And it's a good motivation, a good story start. Because I have felt every, I get excited, you know, when I get a phone call. You know, I don't get as many phone calls as I used to. So when I look at it, I'm like, oh, who is calling me? And I'm not, I'm not a people person, but I enjoy phone calls for whatever reason. Yeah. But, you know, and you find out, you pick up the phone, you're like, well, hello. And it's like, well, I'm interested in your property. And there have been times where I have actually just chewed out the person. And because I'm like, listen, you have been calling me, texting me, doing all of these things. Do you know how irritating this is? I mean, I just have gone on a spiel. It probably does absolutely no good because I still get those phone calls. But this is what Dolores, you know, this is where she's coming from. And it's so relatable. It's like, yeah, get them, Dolores. That's (laughs) right. (laughs) Get them. Get them. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. But, you know, of course, she finds out that it's not the the phone, the people that are doing the phone calls exactly like yeah guy behind that that right right they're with. just yeah trying to get yeah. Survive, so yeah really. so reading yeah. yeah reading your story i kind of felt bad i was like oh i probably am chewing out somebody who's just like having a bad day <laughs> and begin with so you know you just now i just don't answer those calls or if it shows you know yeah, i don't, I don't you know. chew anybody out anymore but sure, man is it sure. tempting it is tempting it is uh and i have tried to just simply say, take me off your phone list. Do not call again. That doesn't Goodbye. seem to work. No, it doesn't. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it doesn't I, seem to work. Yeah. I think yeah. when you say that, they just like add you to a few more lists. That's what I feel like too. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, done, I've tried that also. Yeah. Take me off your call list is a code word for add me to a bunch of other call lists. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably so. Okay. Well, then you've got a lot of books published. So I'm curious, yeah. marketing, is that something that you mm. engage in a lot of? Or is it you know, fun, not fun, just kind of on the side? Like, what's your approach for that? Getting the word out and let people read these books? Okay, well, it's one of those things you have to do. Um, Unfortunately, so hard for many writers who are not outgoing, or they're yeah. not um, extroverts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did not know that I was when I said, okay, I'm going to be an author. And yeah. I'm, you know, I did not know I had to be a speaker. Yes. That, yeah. I, that I had to be a marketeer. Yes. That I, I had to uh, be able to um, be, you know, learn tech stuff because right. I had to do Zoom and all of this. And as you know, that's yep. pretty hard for me. But sometimes you go down the rabbit hole with this stuff and you realize you haven't written today. Yeah. Yes. And you are exhausted. Yes. Yeah. So I have kind of set up a deal where in most days I get up, I try every day, but sometimes, you know, you have other appointments early mm-hmm. in the morning, but I, I like to write first thing in the morning, have my little cup of mm-hmm. coffee. So nice. And yeah. uh, I like to get that done. And sometimes I'll go back in the evening and write some too, but you know, that's like, that's a given. You have to do that. And then I'll go in and check my social media and, yes. you know, start that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I have a, you know, kind of a semi-schedule for the newsletter and this, that, and the other. But honestly, it's uh, it takes a lot of discipline on my part to do the marketing. That's it. <laughs> that, that is exactly right. Discipline is the right word because you have to do it. Mm-hmm. And you can get overwhelmed. We've talked about this on other shows, you know, and there's so many platforms out there 
you know, you have to be disciplined in a few ways. I think you have to be disciplined in knowing your limits because you can't focus on everything and then still get your writing done. Yeah. And the writing is the most important part. If you don't have a product to actually go out there, then you're nowhere. But you also <laughs> have to, once you have that product, you have to be able to let people know about it. Right. Exactly. It, yeah, it's so hard. I mean, you. I have had to mentally prepare myself for Instagram. I decided to focus on Instagram. And I challenged myself Monday through Friday to do one reel a day. And, wow. Um, and for a, for a while, I think I've done that. But I guess my numbers have gone up a little bit. I, but it's, it. Do you find uh, in your marketing and social media that you feel defeated? Yes, I do. I I don't see. Uh, I I started doing some Canva uh, ads. Love Canva. Uh, with the you know music in the background. And yes. my numbers went up. I'm not talking astronomical, but right. they went up a sure, little bit. Sure. You know, yeah. you, can, you can see them on the graph, you know. <laughs> uh, so I said, oh, these are working cool. So I was doing one like once a week. Yeah. And after that first month, nothing. Huh. So I guess it was just the, this is a new thing and this is cool. Yeah, the algorithm. Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Because I don't understand why. Um, I'm sure some of this gets blocked by whatever platform you're on. But uh, at, at a certain point, um, so I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. Sometimes it's easier to actually just go to a little hometown, small town festival. I sold 12 books uh, when I went to the Monroe Art Center Festival on the 18th. Nice. And, you know, who knows? I mean, I don't know. Sometimes that's the most I'll sell that month. So you just don't know. You don't know sometimes if you have a speaking engagement. Sometimes you sell quite a few books and sometimes you don't. Interesting. So do you did you buy a bunch of books and bring them? Oh, well, I, yeah, I, you have to have your own books to go to those kind of things. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah you, that means you have to buy a cart, you know, to, to lug them in. <laughs> right, the back, right. You know, at a table, etc. It's not <laughs> but, just about writing, right? There's a right. lot of stuff. Even yeah. products you have to tote around, so. Yeah, yeah. I just got a <laughs> banner made, you know, for my table. And, oh, yeah, great. Good for you. That's exciting. Something. There's always something, you know, yes. a bookmark, whatever. It's That's exciting good. and also terrifying. Yeah, it is. Exciting and and it's a lot of work. So we have this new question that we're asking and some co-hosts don't like it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so I've revised it a little bit. And the question is, do you remember the first book that made you cry? Or what was a book that had a large impact on your life? That's worded properly. The large Thank, impact, okay, not fine. the boo-hoo-hoos. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> so the first book that really just, you know, has followed me through my life and just this major influence on me is The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. And okay. I, I read it when I was probably a junior sophomore in high school. And I remember thinking, oh, I found my tribe. Yeah, I love Mm. that. I didn't know that phrase then, but I was like, there are there are women out there like me who want more than just not that I didn't want a family and children. Sure, but I wanted to work, and I went in. I remember talking to my mother, who had done odd jobs here and there, but she never had a career. 
And I went in and I remember talking to my mother and I said, mom, you know, was there any time in your life that you really wanted to do something else, you know, besides just kind of work these jobs and, and help support the family and dad? And I remember her face got just, you know, like you could just see that all this turmoil was in her. And she said, she said, I am happy being a wife and a mother. I would never have traded that for anything else. She was just like, she was just like, you know, this is an unbelievable question. Yeah. Wow. And I, I remember saying, mom, I'm not trying to say you should have done anything else. I'm trying to say, did you ever have any other dreams? You know, right. that you yeah. put on the back burner to raise us and to help dad do what yeah. he needed to do. And she just didn't get it at all, you know. Cause huh. she, but anyway, when she, um, I knew that my both my parents actually had not graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, I something came up about education during that discussion. And uh, I had gotten married and left in her early 40s. She went back. Daddy went with her, but he didn't stick it out. Uh, but they got their GEDs, and cool. mother got an education and was a teacher of um, the deaf for a long, long time. Wow. Wow, that's terrific. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you never know what's going to happen, even if it's sort of a negative discussion with negative results at the time. I think that had something to do with her deciding, oh, well, I can do something. You know, my kids are grown. They're going out of the house. and. My sister, right. my sister would have been in college at the same time, too. Yeah. So. You gave her some motivation in a way, yeah. Maybe, who knows, but, yeah. you know. thought the, about it. It's an important book for me, and it has followed me throughout because I didn't have those women in my life. I didn't have yeah. women in my life. Not to say I didn't have strong women in my life, but I didn't have women who understood that part of me that I really yeah. wanted to succeed outside of the home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. It well, is. Good. It is. All right. Well, we are coming up on time here. Melissa, do you want to ask the last question? Yeah. Well, at the end, we always love to ask our authors uh, what advice or resources that you would recommend to aspiring writers or curious listeners. A little piece, a little tidbit to take away as we end the show. Okay. Um, Especially for women writers, you're going to have to be selfish with your time. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's very hard. It's very hard. When yes, I first it started, is. Yeah, my mother uh, had Parkinson's. I was going back and forth taking care of her, and then, uh, you know, like an hour and a half away, taking her to a place. It's very hard to say, okay, you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write something, something words every day. So I didn't do that. What I did was I said, uh, if I can only write 10 minutes or 15 minutes in the waiting room while my mother's in with the doctor, I'm going to do that. Hmm. Yes, taking advantage of those opportunities. And that's how I, that's how I train myself to write every day. And, uh, and if you think about it, if you only write a paragraph a day for 365 days, you're probably going to have close to a novel, if not a novel. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you have to do it in small chunks, do it in small chunks. It's okay. And rejections. Uh, really tough. Really tough, especially in the beginning of your writing career. It just devastates oh, you to get a rejection. Yeah. And, yeah. And I so I started my own process, and I said, okay, you can have two days if it's really one of those major rejections. 
I you like can, it. You can have two days and you can go, well, it's me. And you can, you know, eat your ice cream or whatever it is that you have to do. <laughs> and, you know, go out, jog, whatever it is that you have to do to get it out of your system. And then you have to write. Yeah. yeah. You don't feel like it too bad. You have to write. And yeah, so I like that. Yeah. That is what has kept me on the path because there are times when I can just say, okay, I don't feel great about that, but I can write the next day. But there's sometimes that it really sends you for a loop. Sure. It does. Sure. Yeah. You, well, you know, it's like somebody telling you you have an ugly, ugly baby, you know, it would be <laughs> devastating. That's your, yeah. that's a piece of you that you're putting out there. So when somebody tells you mm-hmm. this, is, I don't want this, get this away from me, then it's, it's a blow to the pride, right? It's a blow yeah. to yourself. So it's hard to get back up on that horse because all that self-doubt, but limiting your time of self-pity is great. Allowing <laughs> it, what I'm hearing from you is allowing it, hey, wallow in it a little bit, but there comes a stopping point, you know? Like yeah, that's good. here, draw the line, cut it off, get back, get back to work. Absolutely. And I the like last, it. The last thing I'll say is- Oh, there's more. Yeah, yeah. one more. Okay, uh, good. The, the last thing is, I think we lose sight of what we have actually accomplished. Yes. Uh, because these small things are just as important as getting that big award out there somewhere in the mm-hmm. future. Yeah. And so when I really get to where I can't, I don't, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this anymore. Yeah. I start keeping a log sheet, PO sheet, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I start making it just a log of what I do every day. And yeah. in a week, it's amazing what you have done. And there's and there's always in there some person who has given you a compliment, somebody who's told you they bought your book and they loved it, you know. And instead of discounting that and saying, "Oh, that's just one person," you know, enjoy that, enjoy right. that moment. Yes, that's I terrific. Think, yeah, I think that's great too. It's very similar. I have I started a uh, positivity wall which sounds pretty cheesy. I think, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but every time I would get, well, I, I've not very consistent with it, but I got this little cork board on the wall when I redid my office. And anytime I would get something positive about my writing or really just about myself, when somebody would say something, I would type it up or print it off or write it down, put it on that wall. You go back and you read those things. It reminds you that, yeah, the over the rejection I got was a part of my life, but so is the positive stuff. Absolutely. And, and there's probably a lot more positive than there is negative, but we tend to focus on the negative, right? And right. that can really get you down. So focusing on the positive by your PO sheet, you know, reading that over, <laughs> reminding yourself, hey, I am pretty awesome. And that person who rejected me doesn't know what they're talking about. I just did a Canva ad, you know. Whatever. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, check Celebrate off. the small victories. Yeah, that's right. That's great. Ooh, very lots cool. Lots of very good cool. advice. Yeah, great advice. So, well, Lynn, thanks so much for submitting your story and letting us uh, get it into the magazine and onto the podcast. I'm excited to have listeners hear it. And I recommend the folks go out and pick up the 40 Knots Burn. Sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. So I appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. And I'm just excited to see, you know, the fact that, that my story is going to be in your magazine. Yeah, no, yes. great, great, great. It's very exciting. So great to have you on the show Lynn and good luck with your writing thank you so much thank you very much for listening we hope you enjoyed the show if so please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app those reviews really make a difference 
The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.